it's Matt Ricardo's London Varieties. I'm Matt Ricardo. We've got a packed show for you this month. From the fantastic sold-out live show, you'll be hearing an interview with the great Lenny Bage, plus his version of an Eminem classic. We've also got an exclusive interview with professional wrestler William Regal. In a life that's taken him from the fairgrounds of Blackpool to sold-out arenas across the world, his is an amazing story. But we're going to start with, well, me, actually. Recently, I was invited to give a lecture about cabaret and variety as part of the Tomax Talks project, and the good people at Tomax were nice enough to let me include the recording of my talk on this month's podcast. So, here's me on stage at the Hoxton Hall, London, talking about my job, how I got into it, and why I love it. Thank you very much. Good evening. And how, how fitting in a cabaret night that I get introduced off the back of a four-minute appearance on Jonathan Voss. How classy <laughs> is that? Um, my name is Matt Ricardo. I am a, special, a speciality act. So I'm going to talk about cabaret from the perspective of variety because that's my history and, and that's what I do. So we're going to start by going back just like Dusty did. Um, about 150 years ago, in the heyday of musical and variety, um, there was a breed of performer known as the gentleman juggler, and they were great. They wore the finest hand-tailored suits, silk ties, silver cufflinks, shiny shoes. They would have their stage set like a bar or a restaurant, somewhere that a gentleman at the time might go for an exciting night out. They would saunter on stage every inch of the playboy, and they would perform displays of dexterity and balance using the kind of things <laughs> using the kind of things you might find in a bar or a restaurant. They were cool, they were clever, they were charismatic, and they used to headline places like this. So, 20 something years ago, when the teenage me was sitting at his desk at Enfield Grammar School, North London, I was encouraged to consider my future. I was told it was time to think about what I might do with the rest of my life. And to help me with this, I was given a form. And printed at the top of the form in block letters were the words, Jig Cow. Jig Cow. Job, idea, information, generator, computer-aided learning. Jig Cal. The principle was simple. I would fill out the form. I would tell the form my likes, my dislikes, my hobbies, my interests, my uh, academic strengths and weaknesses. The form would then be sent away to a computer in Oxford, where there was the only computer at the time, which would then tell me my perfect job. So we all filled in the forms we gave them to our teacher and we forgot about them. Until a couple of months later, a small brown envelope was dropped onto my desk in front of me, inside of which were my two mathematically perfect jobs. Number one, social worker. Number two, undertaker. Strangely, I was not particularly enamored with either of these two occupatory choices, so after a little, a little thought, a little pondering, a little fantasizing, I came up with my third option. Gentleman juggler. Now, bear in mind at this point, I didn't own a suit and I couldn't juggle. But when you're young, you just need something that you can close your eyes and think about. And when you think about it, it makes you happy. And God knows why, but for some reason, that was mine. That's what I had found, and it made me happy. So I started practicing. One month, I could juggle. 
Six months, I could ride a unicycle. A year, I could balance stuff on my face and full tablecloths. Two years, I was ready to work, mainly because I'd been kicked off the dole. <laughs> Every Thursday, down to the dole office, on the unicycle. <sighs> embarrassing, but also kind of great, but mainly embarrassing. So, so I'm, I'm in my late teens, I'm ready to work. Where do I work? Uh, I started my career the same place that virtually everyone of my generation who does the kind of crap that I do starts their career on the street as a street performer. Um, street performing is the single most honest, pure and beautiful form of theatre you will ever see. For more than a decade, thank you, for more than a decade, um, I made my entire income from the voluntary donations of people who had already seen my show. They could have walked away. But enough of them didn't. Enough of them chose to give me money that I could pay the rent for 10, 15 years. That's an amazing business model. You could go on Dragon's Den and pitch that to the dragons. They would literally queue up to punch you in the cock. <laughs> but they would be wrong. It works. It's worked for hundreds of years, thousands of years. It has worked. But as an art form, street performing doesn't encourage subtlety. It, it, it's a little stagnant. It's not a real career ladder thing. You, you need to work elsewhere. So after about a decade of that, I thought to myself, OK, I, I'm, I'm OK. I've overcome my crippling shyness. I can do this stuff in front of people now. And I know what I'm doing to, to an extent. Where can I work? Where in the late 80s, early 90s, does a juggler work these days? Local councils. Local councils book street performers to do shows in shopping centres. Four shows a day, performing to suspicious parents who gulp at you and naturally assume that you're some kind of paedophile, but are nevertheless happy to leave their screaming children in your front row for the whole day. No. Butlins. Oh, I play Butlins. And Pontins and the Haven Holiday Camp Network. An hour on stage. Imagine me on stage for an hour, that's bad enough. In, a, in a, a kind of club the size and shape of an aircraft hangar, and you spend the entire show attempting to discourage drunk teenagers from coming up on stage to steal your props just so they can go back into the audience and throw them at you. <laughs> yes, it did happen. <laughs> comedy clubs, comedy clubs, the burgeoning late 80s comedy club industry you would think would be perfect. Comedy clubs where the stand-up comedians see you as a second-class citizen because you commit the cardinal sin of being as funny as they are and doing something else at the same time. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, German variety theatres. Dusty was talking about the great uh, history of, of variety in Europe. German variety theatres, a, a beautiful, rich history of variety and cabaret in these beautiful theatres run by idiot accountants and patronised almost entirely by the German equivalent of Daily Mail readers. I'm going to say that again, the German equivalent of Daily Mail readers. No. Cruise ships, cruise ships, which are great if your idea of fun is being trapped in the middle of the ocean on a prison made out of glass and marble with three and a half thousand cunts. <laughs> So, so now we're fast-forwarding. It's a decade later, and I've worked in all those places. A hundred years after Titanic, sir. The main tragedy of which was 
a juggler went down. Uh, <laughs> a gentleman juggler. So, so it's a decade later, and I have tried legitimately working in all those places. And it hasn't worked. I've tried to force myself into a dozen different shaped boxes, but I didn't fit into any of them. And I'm starting to lose hope. I'm starting to think that maybe I should do something else with my life. Maybe there isn't a perfect place for someone like me to work, and I should, while I'm still reasonably young, do something else. And then a man called Paul L. Martin books me for a gig. And I do this show in a little dark, crowded room in Soho. And it's full of singers and burlesque performers and clowns and acrobats and me. And the audience are wonderful. And they listen and they laugh and they clap and they even gasp. And it is the perfect place to work. Instead of forcing myself into someone else's box, I'd found the tin where all the broken biscuits live. <laughs> and that's where I work now. Bill's rooms like that, shows like that, sharing bills with people like tonight that I respect, people that I love, people whose acts I will watch from the wings on those rare occasions when the venue has wings. <laughs> when I found Cabaret, honestly, I was depressed about my choice of career. I was lost and I was ready to throw it in. And Cabaret gave me a gang to be part of. It gave me places to work and it gave me the confidence to stretch what I do and do things like this. <laughs> so, now I'm middle-aged, and when you're middle-aged, you start to think about death. <laughs> no, it's not going to take a weird turn, it's okay. Um, but you do, you start to think about what you're going to leave. You start to think about, you know, what you leave behind you, and, and, and that was a puzzle for me. I kind of struggled with this for a while, because if you're, for example... Uh, if you're a songwriter, you leave behind songs. After you're dead, other people can sing them, they can listen to them, you live on through your songs. If you're a writer, you can leave books. People can read them, people generations down the line can discover your work. If you're a director, you leave films which your fans can watch and quote their favourite lines from and love. But if you're a variety performer, if you're a speciality act, if you're a vaudeville schmuck like me, what do you leave? You leave that was invented by George Carl about 70 years ago, and I do it whenever I take my jacket off. My wife has long stopped finding it funny, but I'm still doing it. I'm just... Every day, whenever I take a jacket off. That's what you leave. You leave shtick. Bits of business. When I was a kid, my dad taught me how to do that. He didn't know I was going to use it on stage. He just told me because it's a thing that he did, and I think maybe his dad taught him. And that's what you leave. Shtick, bits of business, routines, tricks, gags that have been passed down from performer to performer, generation to generation, like the fragile heirlooms they are, kept alive just by schmucks doing them for a cheap laugh like I just did. Some of the things that I do in my act have been through the hands of at least a dozen other jugglers, stretching back generations and generations before I found them. It's my job to find them, to give them a polish, take care of them, maybe put a twist on them, and then hand them down to the next person. It's a beautiful thing to be part of. And I'm going to finish my brief time with you this evening by giving you an example of this. Now, do we have this film ready to be shown? <laughs> 
That's Lou Hoffman. He first started performing this trick in about 1930. There you go. That's W.C. Fields, who you know as a film star, but of course he was a juggler before he was a film star. Jugglers. Rebeller, in his own words, performed astonishing tricks unenthusiastically. <laughs> Pretty great, huh? Now, Chris and Bella Primo, father and son, father and son, performed the same routine in sync. But of course, then Bella got old, and Chris went solo and became the biggest star of circus. He's still working today doing the same act. The best man in the world can do it. Three balls, three hands, three boxes. when the American juggling group Air Jazz performed it on the Paul Daniels Magic Show, BBC One, in the early 80s. And that's when I first saw it. So, yeah, So my point is this. When you see a cabaret performer, and obviously I'm talking from a perspective of variety, but I think this is true for most cabaret performers. When you watch me do this trick, which you will in a minute watch, you're not just seeing me, you're not just watching me, you're watching every performer who did what I do before me. You, you, you add something and you move it down. So you're seeing my history in my act, which I think is quite great. Professional wrestling is something unique. Real and not real at the same time, but still a lot more real than most people think it is. It's underground theatre, with its own conventions, running gags, rich history and stars. I think it shares a lot with cabaret and variety, so when I got the chance to interview one of those stars, I didn't think twice. So last week, that's how I found myself sitting literally in a broom cupboard backstage at the O2 Arena in London. The other side of the wall, 20,000 people were going nuts for a live taping of World Wrestling Entertainment's flagship TV show, Raw. But I was happy, sat on a folding chair opposite the four-time WCW TV champion, the four-time World Tag Team champion, the three-time Hardcore champion, the four-time European champion, the two-time Intercontinental champion, and excellent bloke, William Regal. but you started really young. Yes, yes. Uh, I started when I was 15. I always wanted to be a wrestler. The first memories I have, I tell this story all the time, but things I can remember the most from being a kid was wrestling, Slade, that show The Comedians, and Charlie Caroli. I don't think in my book I ever mentioned Charlie Caroli, but it was a big thing that I sort of remember a lot when I was a kid. Uh, and I always wanted to be a wrestler or a clown or a comedian. And I, I say this all the time, but I get to do all three now, which is yeah. very, very grateful that I do. Um, so I constantly wanted to be a wrestler. And I thought, well, anything to get there, but I didn't know how. Well, when I was 15, I started, I'm not from Blackpool, I'm from a little village called Cotswold in Staffordshire. 
Um, my local wrestling hall was Wolverhampton Civic Hall, which was also a great concert venue when I was in my teenage years for a lot of great bands and stuff. Um, but I used to go to Blackpool every weekend. And then the, the long story is that I think I was seven or eight, and I remember walking around the, the, the opening, the big white tower building at the front of the Pleasure Beach as you walk in there, the casino building. And I saw this row of wrestlers. Now I'd seen wrestling on TV and I'd been to lots of shows. My dad, I was great that my dad used to take me every two weeks to Wolverhampton Civic. That was all the televised wrestlers from the, that time period. And I walked around this corner and there was a Viking stood there and a, a red Indian and a man in a mask and a, and a couple of ladies and, and a dwarf and, and, and I was, and a fellow with a microphone challenging people out of the crowd and I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Not only did I only want to be a wrestler, I only wanted to be a wrestler and live in Blackpool. I was fascinated with Blackpool, and still am. I think I love Blackpool so much. One, because I'm not from there, and most people who are from there don't appreciate what they've got, or didn't, especially in those days when it was, was the entertainment capital of the North, if you like that kind of thing. And when I lived there, I mean, let's be truthful, I lived there, but I was always working, so I wasn't stuck there, which is, can make a difference to the way you look at a place, I suppose. So I only, when I lived in Blackpool, I, I loved living there, I loved the characters, I surrounded myself with all the characters there, and when I was off, when I wasn't wrestling, I was out watching shows. So it was just one big learning experience for me, I loved it, loved it. Um, so I saw this row of wrestlers, and I remember the fellow on the microphone putting this challenge out, and I, I, for some reason, I, it was for this Viking, there was this uh, Ragnar the Viking, there was a fellow called Dave from Ellesmere Port, I found out <laughs> later on. <laughs> but he's got this big accident on a block of wood and he's stood there. For some reason, at seven or eight years old, I thought he was trying to fight my dad and I was terrified that my dad was going to have to fight this fella. I don't know why I thought that. but So from that day onwards, not only wanted to be a wrestler, not only wanted to live in Blackpool, but wanted to just work there, just at the wrestling at the Pleasure Beach. Well, um, where I lived in Staffordshire, there was no wrestling at all. It was very localised in, in Britain. You're either London, there's some amateur wrestling clubs, or in Yorkshire and some in, in Lancashire. Very hard to, you know, there's not a lot of it about. Yeah. So I went to judo and I went to amateur boxing and I, I was useless at both. Um, but I did have that, always wanted to be a showman kind of thing. That was basically, although I love the technical aspect of the wrestling, to do it well. Um, I, I loved all the showmanship yeah. and the stuff that I watched as a kid like I, the, the, the wrestlers that I loved as a little kid I go back and watch them now and they don't hold the same fascination for me as when I got to about 12 that was when really the, the whole industry changed and there was a guy called Marty Jones and Rollerball Mark Rocco and those two between them revolutionized the wrestling business and they get no credit for it because they invented a style that was they'd both been to mexico they both were excellent wrestlers and they started doing this very aggressive hard hitting flying around kind of style that nobody else was doing dynamite kid from wigan he came along and learned that style from them because he was trained in more of a traditional british style he went on to huge success. He went to Calgary and, and then to Japan and then 
at the same time as that happening, luckily for me as a kid, seeing all this just evolve in front of me, a guy called uh, Sayama, who was uh, wrestled in this country, they brought him over as Sammy Lee. Supposed to be Bruce Lee's cousin, although they're building from from Tokyo. He was Bruce <laughs> Lee's cousin, and he came in with a little yellow outfit and a stick, and he was incredible. And he sort of picked this really different. St he had his own style, but picked it up from Mark and Marty. He went back to Japan as, and they made him into the uh, Tiger Mask, which was a huge cartoon character in in Japan, and he was a sensation. Well, then he brought in. Rollerball Rocco, as his arch nemesis in the comics, was Black Tiger, the exact opposite of him in, in a black mask and everything. And so that, and then Dynamite Kid went to Japan, and so all the style that you see now of the, well, in the last several years of the, the Eddie Guerrero made popular and Chris Benoit and people that the kind of style that they did, that came from that. And so as a, I got to see all this. So I really started taking notice of the technical wrestling then. And, and then noticing more of the, the great, there was incredible technical sound wrestlers from Britain, but they weren't great flashy guys, you know? So I didn't notice them as a kid, but then once I got to 12, 13, I started studying what they were doing. So I, I wanted to get into this wrestling. How'd you do it? Well, I didn't have a, any, any connections. My uncle knew a fella from the pub who was a lot like a local, basically he was a, just a bandit, you know, like, a, and he ran a, ran a few, he was not very good, and ran a few sh local shows, but they weren't up to much. So I started knocking around with them, that little crew a bit and putting the ring up and that, but there was nobody there that could really teach me anything. So I remembered about the Pleasure Beach. So I just started every weekend, there's this, plumber that worked for me dad, Mick Maloney, he used to, his sister had a guest house there, so I used to go and stay with her all through 83, through the summer season. I just used to go and hang around there all day and just sit there watching them all day and eventually, and I'd been doing this little bit of wrestling with these, like learning a few things off these fellas from Wolverhampton, not much. So I go up to promote, I said, look, I'm a trained wrestler, I want to be a wrestler, you know, and he went, Sure you do, kid, you know. So he put me in the ring with a fella. Um, he, at the time he was wrestling as Magnificent Maurice and he later had a, quite a successful run in Europe as uh, Colonel Brody. And he'd just got out of jail for 16 years for murder or something. He was a, he was a right handy fella, Sean. And, and he was a big hard fella, big bald head and covered in tattoos, big handlebar moustache. And then, the, the way it was ran at the Pleasure Beach, you, you used to take the challenges on out of the crowd. 99% of them were fellas that worked for us, and, and you know, you'd have your plants in the, in the crowd. And, because normal people don't make good entertaining challenges. Yeah. So when you got a guy on a microphone and he's challenging, he's doing a great spiel outside to try and get people in, well, normal fellas stand there, you know, they don't do anything. So you, that's how you get your crowd in, is people and all. You get, but you used to get. Quite a lot of people had jumped the ring, especially um, once they saw that who they perceived to be a, a real person wearing street clothes in there. They used to, a lot of them would get the courage up then and jump in. And I'd seen this fella just muller people, I mean, proper hospital ambulance carrying away. So I get in the ring with him thinking he knows who I am, right? So I'm thinking the prompt must have told him. And I've, I'm like, I know, I know how to wrestle, which I didn't. 
So I'm like giving him these phony looking punches and that. He's, he's obviously realised I'm only a little 15 year old kid and he, he just whacked me a bit and, and it made me submit and it was more the humiliation of it than anything. Because I thought, well, nobody's told him who I am, one of them, you know. I thought I was in a, in a deal with him. And, uh, but I was back there the next day and then I was back there the next weekend and then the promoter was a lovely, lovely, lovely man. It was very, very difficult to get in the wrestling business in them days. Um, you either had a, a family member in it or you were an amateur wrestler or an amateur boxer or something, and usually a very good one. Uh, this fellow would give you an opportunity. Um, I started there, Klondike Kate started there, he was always, you know, had a long career. Robbie Brookside started there, my old, who's here today, my old partner, Robbie. Um, there's a lad works in here, Frankie Sloan, who works in Britain. He's like the last of, I think, the last of the people that came through that system. Um, there's a lad in Blackpool, Shaq, he came through that system. Uh, and there's not, what happened was when I left to go to America, unfortunately, Bob passed away and then it, it, it shut down. There was nobody to run it. And the, so now it's impossible to run there because you have to pay to get in. But before it was just paper ride. Well, that was how you could get the masses yeah. of people just walking past so you could get a pitch. And that happened with a lot of stall holders in, in, in Blackpool. Yeah. Once they started charging to, well, it trickles people through, so you never get a big group of people to, to be able to get a pitch, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, the next thing, they're teaching me a few moves and, a, a little, and what they used to do was go out, we'd all stand out there, and it was in uh, the Horseshoe Show Bar, which is a, a very famous venue. You know, it started off there. When I was there, there was the Mystique Show there with, um, what was his name? Uh, Russ, Russ Stevens. Yeah. And he was the original guy to do the, the in, impaling trick on the, coming through the, that he invented that. And he was a very smart guy. And he invented a lot of those 80s illusions that came out of the, the, the chair. The, the cover over and disappear and be up in the audience oh, yeah. and he, he was the, the, the guy that created all that and that's where it all started the mystique and it wasn't quite then but a bit after that Bradley Walsh was the comic in there and there was always different comics working in there yeah. it was a great great little venue well, we used to the, the stage used to drop down in the daytime and you could fit a 14 foot ring in there it was 750 seats in like a little cabaret room and we used to try and get as many in as we could and as many shows as we could and we had to be out by 5.30 so they could clean up, get the ready for the, the night show. Um, Lord Payne used to be in there on a Sunday, he was a hypnotist and my friend... Lord Payne? Yeah, Lord Payne, yeah. My friend Ken Webster does it now, he's been doing it for 21 years, he does Saturday nights and if you ever get the chance to go and see him, he's yeah, yeah. magic, magic. Um, so anyway, I'm getting off the track here, it's all connected, I hope. Um, so they told, and what they used to do, what, sometimes it'd take, depending on good days, you could get, fill the place up as many as you could with just one little G outside. Sometimes it used to take three or four or more, sometimes you can, there was just not enough people about. So they used to put me on with another young lad or somebody a bit better than me just on in a match while the people were coming in. So nobody was paying any attention to them, but if they're they came in, got a drink, sat down, waiting for the actual show to start. So that's how I actually started. Right. Um, 
I go up that winter, November, everything closes up, obviously. I go back home. Very hard to go back and concentrate on your schooling. Now your head's full of being, you know, I'm going to be a pro wrestler and going to go and live in Blackpool, right? That's all that's, all that matters to me. Um, so I went back to school, was never that good at it anyway, and, and just did nothing for the next few months. Got through my exams, finished on the 18th of May, 1984. I turned 16 on the 10th of May. 84 and worked for my dad for a few weeks um, just to get enough money to leave home with and then left home and moved to Blackpool unfortunately that year for whatever reason Bobby Barron who, who ran the thing had lost the Pleasure Beach he had shut down for that particular year but he still had pontins he had all the northern pontins and he had the Carly Grand in Fleetwood and uh, it's called Lakelands, I think, at Ponderosa and Grange over Sands and all these little caravan parks. So there's still plenty of work. So I went, I was apprentice for that firm, Worldwide Wrestling uh, was what it was called. I went and worked for them. And a proper two-year apprenticeship, carry everybody's bags, put the ring up, clean the people's boots, fetch the tea, and all the pros would teach you the ropes. You know, you'd wrestle and you'd... They'd, tell you what you were doing right, what you were doing wrong, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I basically wrestled the same two fellas the entire time. One was called Gaylord Steve Peacock, who, who obviously had a, a very flamboyant <laughs> comedy act, and he was an incredibly funny wrestler. Incredibly funny. And he, he took all his stuff from the great... There's always a great tradition of, of comedic wrestlers from Britain, Les Kelly and Cat Weasel and that. He'd wrestled them all and took all the best bits and he used to put it, and he'd also been Adrian Street's tag partner from years ago. So he'd put it all into this flamboyant comedy kind of role that he did. So all I did was basically stooge for him. He'd, he'd have all his comedy spots and I'd just be st stood there and do a few holds and a few moves and he'd do his little act and it, it was very good. And then another fella called he was a friend of mine, John Palin, wrestled as Dave Duran, who did his best to make sure I didn't come back every day. Because it was, like I say, I'm not just exaggerating this, this was a hard game to be in. And they expected if you were in it, you had to be an hard fella to stay in it. Because there was only so many spots. And he did his best to put me off every day. And beat me up and did what he had to do. And I don't hold it. It may sound like I hold it, but I absolutely don't. I wouldn't want to see anybody go through it but it made me what I am. Yeah. And he didn't do it. Once I got to 18, he explained it to me. We got on great and everything. He was like, look, it's like you say, you've earned your spot now. If you have, everybody respects you. And they did. Anybody knew where I came from, same with Brookside and same with Klondike Kate. You know, doors were open for you that wouldn't be open for other people because they knew you'd been through the ringer to get there. You hadn't just yeah. walked in the door. I was a different man altogether, or a different boy. I'm still a boy, but a different person. Um, and realise that what's the worst that can happen to me? The worst that can happen to me is I get beat up, right? I'm getting beat up every day at work. I'm getting threatened <laughs> with it every night. So nothing to be scared about. So I started, and all this thing sort of fell into place. And then when I was 17 also, luckily for me, Robbie Brookside is a little bit older than me. Been through the same place as me, but, um, cause he lived in Liverpool all-star wrestling promotions, which still runs shows all over England today, still does all the Botmans and everything. They're based in Merseyside. 
he had a year in Blackpool, went back to Liverpool and worked for them. Well, they had a lot of incredibly good wrestlers. So we, the only way, I'm, I'm sure it's in any, any walk of life, you only really get better by, with wrestling, is wrestling better, more experienced people. Yeah. Because they, you know, I mean, that's, we're not trying to kid each other what wrestling is anymore. We know what it is, very physical, but we, it's, we're telling a play out, you know, we're putting on a play for people. They'll tell you when to speed up, when to slow down. No, not yet. No, listen to the audience. Listen, what are you doing that for? They're not reacting, and that's how you get better at this. And there's a big difference. Unfortunately, it's, it's very sad for the younger generation now that they don't have that, because most of the old pros have all gone. So, but I got Robbie Brookside come back to work for Bobby Barron, and so luckily. I got put on with him a lot of it. Instead of just the same two fellas, I got put on with him every day. Well, he was like 18 months older and he'd wrestle all these really good wrestlers from Johnny St. onwards nearly every night. So we just kept adding little bits every day and adding a little bit more and adding a little bit until I got very, all this stuff that Marty Jones was teaching me and doing this stuff actually in the ring in front of an audience so you know whether it works or not. So you can learn all the stuff you want in a ring, in, in a gym or practice. If people aren't reacting to it, it's yeah. no no use doing it, right? Yeah. Just, so that was how. So all of a sudden, it all sort of snowballed for me. Not only was I, I'd go out to shows in Blackpool, I'd be watching, you know, in front of me, I'd Stan Boardman, Bernard Manning, uh, Jimmy Marshall, all these great comics and that, that you know, and a rowdy crowd. And I, I always knew that. I don't know why, I always thought I was, obviously, as a young, you treated as a good guy. Uh, I'd end up being a villain, a wrestling villain. And I thought, I need to, do all the best ones now out of control an audience. Completely and utterly have a hold over audience. So that's why, uh, being a big comedy fan and, and, and entertainment and, and fan of any kind of term at all, I, these comics there, the ones who work in these rough clubs, they're the ones I need to be learning from they can just control people and shut them up and uh, so I'd be sat studying them like one of my favourites still to this day is Mick Miller Mick was always on in Blackpool different places and so any day I had off I'd find where Mick if he was in town I'd go and watch Mick Miller because Mick was very different to a lot of that air of although he's grouped in with that air of comics you go back and watch his old act and it's a very different act didn't tell many jokes, he had his own little stories and stuff, but his put-downs were always different, you know, they always got your, the same kind of put-downs, he'd just be, I mean, just brilliant, and I'd be like, ah, little things that I took, and, and so all this stuff's going in, all eventually, luckily, it paid off. Um, and that's basically what happened, and from then onwards, when I was 18, um, finally got hired by Dale Martins, who ran the World of Sport things when I was 18. I had my first match from the Floral Hall in Southport. Uh, and within a short period of time, I got thrown in as Big Daddy's tag partner, which everybody thought was amazing, except for me. And the reason being, by that time, I changed my views on what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I, there was a group of British wrestlers that were renowned all over the world heavyweight wrestlers that you never saw much in England that travelled the world and I wanted to be one of them 
and they were all usually very serious looking fellas, boots, trunks, short haircuts, looked the part and certainly when you watched them it may be to you know, fan of excitement, maybe they weren't the most exciting but it looked as real as it could get. And they travelled all over the world and they made a lot more money than all the British wrestlers. And they always looked tanned and, and like seemed to have these, I'd see them walk in with these, you know, thing they'd just come from Germany or South Africa or Japan or, you know, they'd been to Mexico or whatever and I thought, I want to be one of them. So getting thrown in as Big Daddy's tag partner was not what I wanted because although I was on TV at 18 and that sounds great, I wasn't going to get any better. Because once you get in that role, you're stuck in that role. Well, you like I saw back to that thing of only getting better by wrestling better people. Yeah. I was just feeding so he could come in, and, and which nothing wrong with that. But I wanted more than that, so he'd come in, do his thing, and, and we'd leave, and that'd be it. And I was like, so I went to Marty Jones and said, I, I, I know Brian Dixon at All Star. He's he's got all these great wrestlers. I said, I know it's a step backwards, but I want to quit here and go and work for them so I can work with better people. He went, you're mental, you can't, why would you want to quit being on TV? And, and everybody else told me the same thing. Why, Barney, what do you want to do that for? I said, well, I, I think that's the way I, I, I don't want to, not bother about being here now. I still want to live in Blackpool, but I want to go overseas and do all that stuff. So uh, I went to Max Crabtree and I said, I, I'm going to, quit you know bloody hell kid what are you doing you know you, you, you're our Shirley's tag partner you can't you know you're on main events on television I, I don't want to do that man. I want to get he said you never go anywhere kid he said you're just killing your own career I said well thank you for the opportunity but in the meantime I'd called up Brian Dixon Brian Dixon made me a promise all the promoters I've worked for and I've been very fortunate and I say this with, with, with great fondness that they've all been wonderful rogues hmm. as you have to be to be a promoter in yeah. any, any form of entertainment and Brian Dixon's a wonderful rogue um, I called him up and he said look I promise you I'll put you on with somebody better every night and he kept to his promise and from that within I left in November of 86 I left John Promotions uh, Dale Martin's the same thing it's just more different terms and I went to work for Brian Dixon and from day one he, uh, I was on with not a big name now but Rocky Moran's and then I within a short time I'm on with uh, like Kendo Nagasaki and I'm, I'm wrestling Rollerball Rocco and I'm wrestling Johnny Saint and I'm wrestling all the best wrestlers things went on and went on and then eventually um, I ended up getting a call to come to America in, in uh, going to America in 1993 uh, for WCW, which was another company. That's and my first saw you. Yeah, yeah, with Ted Turner. Um, when I got there, the guy in charge of it was a guy called Cowboy Bill Watts, who was a very serious, proper hard man. And he said, I don't want you to be a, a good guy or a, a bad guy. He said, I want you to be one of them English wrestlers, because he knew the reputation of these strip. Well, I can do that, no problem. It was dying to death. You could, you, right, the first time they said, first night on TV, right, go on TV, you make yourself look good in three minutes. Well, I'd never done anything less than, we used to do rounds, you know, it was six five minute rounds, eight five minute rounds, 15 five minute rounds, whatever you needed, that's what I could do. 
I don't know what to do in three minutes. I, you know, I take you tell this is about telling. You have to build up to things, and so, so I, it was just ooh, not very. I, and, and the fellas I was wrestling, that wrestling stuff's only any good if you're on with people who know how to wrestle. Well, the fellas they were putting me on with didn't. They weren't as not. But, so things I was doing to them, they had not. They just didn't really know, and they they they, they, they were just. I was. They were scared, a bit scared of what I was doing for one, because I a bit of a aggressive style so I was hitting them harder than they were, they were used to being hit I was doing things they were sort of cowering away from him just looking off and at the same time because of Tony Schiavone he put me on they used to send the tapes that they sent over to show at 3 o'clock in the morning over here so like people like you there's only turns and insomniacs ever saw my, my stuff from my <laughs> early American yeah. anybody that worked nights saw bouncers right all yeah. my bouncer <laughs> pals used to see it but nobody else saw it <laughs> but there was a legendary American announcer called Gordon Soley who was like just revered in America well he was working for WCW and he used to do the voiceovers for the English shows well Tony Schiavone said you'd be good at that do that with him so I got to do that and so I ended up doing the commentary on that um, so I got to do little bits of this and lots of lines I'd stolen from comics and stuff which I still do to this day and still you know, believe me if any of them are listening or anybody's uh, they've never done in my, it's always out of absolute total utter respect for everybody I do and if I can give it on Twitter or anything I always usually credit whoever it is if yeah, I throw do, a line yeah. in because I, I, if I don't know I'll put I don't know but He's a great line or so, whatever. That, that, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about because I think that's really interesting from a, a personal point of view because you're saying that so much of, of, of what makes you great at what you do and you are great at what you do is the stuff, the, the, the influences you've taken from sort of British comedy yes. and melded them with your yes. wrestling training and created yes. something unique. Yeah. And of course, I've just stolen tons of shit from you because, and, and, and your colleagues because when I'm working a room in a club, I've learned how to sort of, it's that thing of of turning heel on the audience a little bit, but doing it in such a way that they know it's okay. Yeah. And that's what makes it, isn't it? it it's somehow, and I'm not even sure how I do it, but you do that magic thing where you can insult them as much as you like, and they, and they hate you for it, but not really. Yeah. And that's the magic. And whenever I do that, I, I've learned all of that, not so much the, the techniques, but the the feelings, the, the way you judge a crowd and when to do it and how to do it. I've learned that from watching wrestling. Well, see, I, I learned that from some wrestling, but also watching mostly comedians working yeah. to hostile crowds in Blackpool. And not not the the, the, the the great shows, the peer shows and that, which I used to go and watch, because they're not really, they're working to people who paid to go and see them in the first place. So they, they don't want to go in not liking it because they've spent, but if you're just a comic on in a club and you're interfering with somebody's drinking, you've got to know how to work. Like, yeah. I mean, you, I'm not going to get into any arguments about the rights and wrongs of Bernard Manning, but he was an absolute master at what he absolute, did. Absolutely. An absolute master. And I've seen him do some of the, the you know, somebody, say something and you're waiting for some great line and he's just looked over at somebody and said shut up you silly twat and he's just I'm like who would think to see you waiting for some special line to come out and he's just cut them off with that silly you know like just insult him and just everybody's laughed and shut him yeah. up 
and, and you, like, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get some wonderful line here and, and so he's going great put, which I've seen him do over and over, but it's just enough of that that, and if you looked at him, he was a little tubby fella. People were scared of him. Yeah. People were scared to death of him. All the other comics were scared of him. Yeah. If you look at him, why are they scared of him for? But in a room, a, a yeah. room full of, you know, several hundred nasty, horrible drunks were terrified of him. He yeah, could look at them, pierce them with his eyes and just shut them up instantly better than anybody I've ever seen. Mick Miller's excellent at that. He's just great at that. So there was a time, like, there was none of the, This is, we get to this when we're in the sports entertainment here and now. But there was a time when wrestling wasn't that. And as a bad guy, people truly hated you. A lot of people don't remember them days. I do, and I was part of it. When I first went to America, and I still, and like after a few months of being just me, I thought, this isn't going to work. I've got to be this character that I've been envisioning for years, and bring all these aspects, because I know if it makes me laugh or it is entertaining or people, First of all, I knew anybody in England sees it, they'll be along for the ride in it. So it's one big in-joke, and which is this carry-on thing. But everybody else is going to hate me for it, but truly hate you. And you can't be frightened. It's, it's, a, it's a scary thing to do. I've always kept my life outside wrestling very low-key. I don't tell anybody what I do. or what, Because I know being the son of, you know, I've got three sons, being William Regal's son is not very cool. If you were John Cena's son, it's cool to go to school and say that. When you, if you go to school and kids find out you're William Regal, who's, I've had, and this is the truth, I wrestled a match with Larry Zabisco in Jacksonville Coliseum, and you know, this is how bad it used to be. People hated me so much. I came out the ring and I'm doing my thing. You know, they're just this stereotypical English thing. This is 1994, on the old Coliseum, it's gone now. There was an American flag hanging on the wall. On a, you had to go on the stage and then the, the stage led off into dressing rooms. I put my hand, I was going to pull the flag off and throw it on the floor and stamp on it. And as soon as I put my hand on it, a gun went straight into my forehead. Oh, God. And it was a policeman who was stood on the side of the stage, he stuck a gun straight into it, pointed right at me head and he said, I suggest you don't do that, sir. I said, I think you're right, officer. And I just went completely out of character and just walked straight off the stage. Oh, That's how the... I came out the back of a, in Macon, Georgia. This is how much those, you know... They call them rednecks, but the southern people in England. I made them hate me so much when I first was doing that, Lord Steve. And if the ones who don't know, the first character made myself into a moody nobleman. I was Lord Stephen Regal. Because uh, my original name was Stephen Regal. Steve Regal. Um, I came out the back and I just bought my first decent car that I could afford to buy when I got there, which was a second-hand Mercedes. I came back with six fellas kicking all the panels in and dripping the, you know, the wing mirrors. That's the kind of what they call in our business heat that mm. you used to try to get. Yeah. Nowadays, it's all a bit... You know, I don't like saying the word cartoony, but it's it's not. They don't want you going that far because now we work to family audiences. Yeah. No, we didn't. That, we, the only way you try and weigh up what wrestling is, you cannot explain. Pro, it's it's totally illogical business you're trying to make logic out of. You try explain it to somebody who's never watched it. You can't do that. It's not possible because well, you've got two fellas fighting. Are they really fighting or not? Or one's a good guy. It just doesn't make any sense. That was the only way that people came, whether they want to believe it or not. They believed it while they were there, or else they wouldn't have gone. Yeah. 
and you had to, uh, if you didn't have some, a real good bad guy, they didn't care about paying to come to see the good guys beat the bad guys. And you have to be done well for people. People say a lot of stuff about wrestling. The ones who, it's usually the ones who don't watch it or who try and make it, and actually watch it for any length of time. It's no different than going to the movies. You go to the movie, if you see stuntman jumping out the helicopter and not Jason Statham, you're not going to go back again. And that's no different than us. You have some stuff that doesn't look good, but the majority of stuff, you know, you watch it. You can't, I defy anybody to watch anything I do and say it looks phony or that, because it's not. It's a very physical game. Don't mean that you won't see a lot of phony looking stuff, but I've always prided myself on not being that same thing as being a bad guy. I wanted everybody in America to truly want me dead. And I used to go out my way to make them do it and went along with it and find my way out of places and having to have escorts out of places all the time to, to do it. And that's, that's what made that first part of my career in America successful and I made a name for myself. But you have to live that role and it comes at a price and it gets into your head a bit and it got into mine and, you know, went off the rails for a few years for different reasons, but I don't regret any of it. But just the way it changes, Nowadays, when I came, especially when I came to the WWE, it was okay. Now I know I'm going into this the, the entertainment business. I, I was always in that, and I've never had any doubts about what wrestling. But I'm always in the entertainment business. But now I can really be this over-the-top thing, and it's just having to adapt at different points of the, my career. When I started off here, I was a certain way then. They've, you know, that that's ran its course, and so you can, you know, I'm I'm just a normal fella. So you've got to figure ways of, you know, there's only a few people have that Elvis quality, that are just magic, and not many. I don't have that. I'm just a normal fella that's had to work at, okay, well, make people hate me or make people laugh at me, and if I'm going to make them laugh at me, I want them to laugh at me, but hate me at the end of it. So I've done the most outrageous things on the show, and I'm still willing to do them now. Um, because I know at the end of it, it's going to be a bonus to me because they're going to hate me even more. Or at least they're going to go away and be entertained. And I don't, like, I don't take any audience for granted, I never, I never. I don't go out there thinking anybody knows me. I, I think of about a fella who doesn't like wrestling, whose children wants to come, who things are tight. And let's face facts, it costs a fortune to come here, an absolute fortune. So I think about this fella who don't really want to come. These kids do, but if there's not something that's going to keep him occupied for three hours that he's here, he'll talk his kids out of it, especially nowadays when things are tight. So I always think about him. I want him to come and watch me and either really hate me, at least look at me and go, and he might not even pay attention, but at least I, I can look it in his eyes and I pick him out, them kind of fellas, and I, I get them to where they're screaming mad at me or they're laughing at me or whatever else and it's just learning to read and you know I can walk down a ramp and it's only picking up from some wrestlers some comedians I've spotted everybody all the way down who I can do this with I'm sure it's the same with you guys and the same with anybody who I can do that with who I can do that with right they're going to be I'm not going to be able to do anything with them right this fella is on the front row effing and blinding well there's a lot of kids there their parents aren't going to bring them back, so I'm going to shut him up straight away. So I'm going to, boom. And I can, I've, I've got over the years, I used to do it verbally. I, I pride myself now because I've always wanted to be a different of just by doing it with looks. And usually I'll just look at him and 
and slowly chew my bottom lip and make the call sign or something and that and then everybody's laughing at him so that shuts him up but they all think they're laughing at they're laughing at, at him with me but then I'll just snarl, snarl at them and they'll start booing me again and, and that's how I sort of work to and now I've got to the last couple of years where I've sort of reinvented myself again as this like this this old rogue you know I mean I'm and and uh, all these little comedy things I do a bit more of them and people are sort of even every, in America or whatever they're sort of more I'm letting them in on on the you're along for the ride with me here but when when things turn serious they turn serious but otherwise you know, and I do the, I've started doing a bit of commentating on it and it's all it's just ridiculous nonsense and making <laughs> stuff up and, and, and taking lines or a lot of the times I'm sat there thinking, what would Les Dawson say? <laughs> and I, and I'll, I like, I remember one little routine of his and I'll take one little saying and I'll, I'll add to it or I'll take it or just, and nobody in America understands it at all. They, they just, but it, it's just different to them so they listen to it. Or around that, you know, and, and basically the show that I'm on at the moment, it only gets seen on on the internet in America, but it gets seen around the rest of the world on regular TV. Yeah. So I work, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, all the people in England get, or hopefully get this, Australia, Canada, because they've all had that influence gr growing up, and I got like a, it's just a different way of me adapting to to move forward because I I don't want to wrestle as much anymore because I want to. I want to just pick my spots like I'm on this tour now and you can only do you know I've, I've had a long career at this and it's demanded physically man there's not many people who wrestled as long as me actually yeah. as long as me yeah, yeah. very few it's yeah. weird I was at that Hall of Fame the other week and Arn Anderson's there and he actually only had a 15 year career wow. and I've had like a 29 and I worked it out I worked it out with all the injuries suspensions um, being locked in the nut house for four months, I had a year off once with a heart problem. I went to India and got a, a heart problem. I've had two and a half years off out of 29 and, and worked a full schedule. It's a long time, you know, so it got to a point where I was like, your knees are going a bit, your back's bothering me too much, and I won't even take an aspirin, you know what I mean? So it's not for the last 12 years, so do I want to keep going and end up, or I can do a lot of other things, I can entertain people. And so now I'm relying more on going back to what I learned from the turns and, and the comedians and the, yeah. and the, anything I can think of, I'm non-stop watching. And it, and it helps as well, I'm, I'm out in it, like I'm always saying to these fellas, look, when I'm in an airport, I'm, I'm never texting or looking at stuff. It's only when I've got, there's nothing else to do and I'm locked in a room and maybe I can't load up anything on YouTube that I ever go on Twitter or go on anything else. So I, I do have to keep that up a bit, like since I, the company made me get one of them and it's been great. I got in contact with you, it's been wonderful. You're, you're really good on Twitter. But it, it's, yeah. I don't talk about wrestling, really. Yeah. It's about things that interest me. We'll talk about British comedy, yeah. Northern Soul, or British culture things and all obscure little things and, and Lizards and stuff. That's my other hobby. I keep lizards and stuff. So it's and I thought if they ask me to put the odd thing out about on on wrestling, you know, to advertise something, I will. But mostly it's not. It's maybe old British wrestling, but it's it's all British cultural stuff from sixties yeah. and through the eighties. But I'm constantly watching people. It's like a lot of the little tricks I've got of how to make people mad at me. I'm sat in airports or anywhere, and I'm making mental notes. 
why do I want to go and punch that fella in the face? Why is it, what, you know, but I do that and I think, as soon as I've done it, I'm making a mental note. It's because he's doing that, right? That's in the act now. Next time I get the chance, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try that look or I'm going to try that certain way expression he's just pulled. And if I do it enough and it gets enough reactions, it stays in the act. And if I don't, it's out. Yeah. If I hear somebody say something in a certain way, right, I'm going to try that if it works. And that's the way, over years, you sort of build up, like, I've not got one on today, but usually any shirt, if I'm ever on camera, I work on a 1% basis of make, you know, trying to make yourself different. I have W Regal just embroidered on my shirts. Oh, nice. The only reason, because I've sat next to so many businessmen on planes, it was about 15 years ago, this finally sunk in, and I've looked at them with the monogram shirts, and I thought, <laughs> I just want to elbow you right in the mouth. Oh, that's such a good detail. Just punch you right in the face. <laughs> and, and I thought, right, that's it. And it's always them fellas that have the Stan Ogden trousers up up around the neck and yeah. they, they got the monogram <laughs> so all the shirts went the next day all the shirts went to the tailors put if just one person they notice that on camera when i'm doing a thing and they go what a prick that's great and then he tells 10 people and he and if, if everything's like that one little detail of one like you know you'll, and if you like with you i'm sure and, and i do it for people that like robbie brookside's my kid thing and I, uh, what did you see now well i saw a bit of Larry Grayson, I saw a bit of this, a bit of Ronnie Barker from, and he, he'll be, he's that good at it, and I'm, that's how much we've st from such and such a sketch, or so, you know what I mean, or a little bit from this, or a bit from that, and and, and it's, that's how it's, like the act has evolved, and it, it's, yeah. and it's never ending, it's never, never stopped, no, yeah, of course, never yeah. stopped trying to look for these things, you know. I think, I think people that don't, that don't watch wrestling, yes, um, would be, uh, pleasantly stumped that so much work and nuance goes into it and I think that's where our two jobs are quite similar especially when yes. I used to in the early part of my career when I was a street performer yeah. um, I mean for a good 10, 15 odd. years <laughs> up, but it's the same as when you're at the pleasure beaches gathering yeah. a crowd you know it's the yeah. same skills and for 10-15 years most of my income came from, from that and it's people that just sort of know what it is they go okay it's, and, and I think when, when when I tell someone that I used to be a street performer they maybe think of someone with a chainsaw juggling yep. or maybe someone painted silver standing still on a crate you know and it's the same with I think with, with wrestling people that don't take the time to look at it they kind of dismiss it as a low brain art form but with both of our jobs the more you look at it the more it opens up and you see that what's going on here is really high level theatre. Yes. It's really, really clever. To be done well. To be done well. And when it is done well, it's it's as moving and, uh, and uh, as affecting as anything else. Yes. You know, there are moments of moments that come to mind of, of my, you know, time watching wrestling that I've, I, 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 well, hold my hand up, I've cried watching wrestling. Mm. There's moments that maybe just go, oh my God, you know, there's these beautiful moments. And of course, when you get people like you and, and amongst my other favourites, people like obviously Eddie Guerrero, who could mix the, the athleticism and the arse kicking with this real nice comedy flair, it's just something really special. Well, it, it is what it is, and anybody who, like I say, everybody watches for different things. Yeah. And some people just see this, and it's a shame that enough people in it don't have that kind of it's, it's a sad thing that not enough people that are in it take the time to learn all the detail mm, stuff yeah because you get and and the days i'm sure is with your game you, 
to make a career out of this now, you have to be good at it, to make a long career. Yeah. Anybody can come along for a few years, but it's a 60% different crew here than it was two years ago. Wow. But all the old, and I, don't, I don't want to mean old by old pros, but the fellas who know, who've took the time, it, no different than young fellas, they can all learn it. Mm -hmm. The ones who, there's a good group ready to come through it, and there's some already here, Daniel Bryan just going in there, as you know, I mean, I, been with him since he was 18 but mm. he went all around the world and learned everything and everything he could and picked everybody's brain I sent him you know talk to this fella talk to this fella he, watch, he can help me with this he can help me um, when they get here on this big stage and they can throw it all together yeah it's like but you cash it all in you cash it all in like nobody thought he could do this they, they, well he's not going to be able to talk he's not going to be able to do anything he's magic he's just, so big just give, you, give him the opportunity and he'll stay like that yeah. because he's got all those skills in the bank and he's got he's only just started drawing on them people yeah. have no idea same with Seamus another one he's got you know, he's got a perfect, but he put his time in over here and he's, he's always trying, he never stops trying to get better. Yeah. And all the people that never, there's a lot of fellas in any walk of life, they just don't try and they just get there and they think they've arrived and they don't try and work on it. Or they don't go to the past to look what worked for other people. There's yeah. a reason pro wrestling has been around for hundreds of years. There's a reason that variety has been around for a thousand. Because it works if it's done well. The people yeah. wouldn't come to watch it otherwise. And if you just go back and see what used to work and, and go back and, okay, especially with wrestling, if you go back for the American wrestlers, they used to, and the British ones, they, they used to fill the same buildings at least every two weeks through the winter season. You can't go and do the same sh sh stuff every two weeks you have to know how to change your stuff up you have to learn different ways of doing things different audiences and same with with this now you know what i mean you can only be on tv so long before your face gets wore out so you better start changing your stuff up unless you've got that magic elvis thing i still use that term because i don't know of a better one you know yeah. you could dig elvis up he could be 400 pounds of rotten flesh sat on that stage but he'd still be elvis yeah Nobody will know. I, I hope this isn't the case, but I, and I'll throw it. But nobody knows you know, who Justin Bieber is in three years. No different than the Jonas Brothers or Hanson or any of them thing. But you always remember Keith Richards. You always remember people. Yeah. And that's another thing. Unfortunately, we don't have in life is enough characters anymore. Yeah. And I wouldn't want anybody to go through a lot of the stuff I've been through. But it makes you in. That's another thing. Going back to my pal, this fella on, who's bringing his kids. If he comes and, and he looks at you and don't think that you've lived a bit of life, he's not going to buy into you. Yeah, I agree. If he don't look at your face and thinks he, he stopped a few, he's not going to believe in you know, as a wrestler, he's not going to buy into you. Yeah. Um, if you're talking and you don't make eye contact with him and, and make him feel that you can pull his throat out, yeah, he's never going to be, you know, waste any money on paying to see you mm. or hoping somebody's going to beat you up for him. Um, and it goes on and on, and it's the same. That's that's what I learned from all those great, you know, comedians and stuff. You know, you've got to, the ones with the, 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 you know, you get you get the exception, you get the very, and then you get the ultimate in, in the Bob Monkhouse types. But when I when I say the the tuxedo and Dicky Bob guys, the 
burnout manager used to ever said, you can't learn this business on the golf course. You got to be, you know, and Ken Dunn said, you, you, to be a good comic, you got to know what the price of cabbage is, right? Because you've got to have a connection, they've got to believe in you, right? I'll give you a little off note. My middle name is Kenneth. I don't know, this is the family story. I don't know if it's true, I hope it is. Um, I was born a little early. My mom and dad had tickets to go and see Ken Dodd at uh, Wolverhampton City Hall, and the mom went into labour and she had me in the house, and so that is why my middle name is Kenneth. Nice. And I've still never seen Ken Dodd. I've never seen him, because every time he's, he's, I don't know why, all through the 80s, and whenever he was on in Blackpool, it was a Sunday night, and I was always wrestling at the tower. Yeah. So, or I was wrestling, then it changed when they stopped doing the tower and it, they started doing Morecambe on a Sunday and that, so I never actually seen him. I still want to see him. Still, 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 still working Yeah, still working hard, yeah. Okay, so one more. As many as you want. I'm enjoying question. this. <laughs> most fun I've had in a long time. But final question. Um, so, how do you think that the, the 15 year old William Regal would feel about where you've ended up? Because all he wanted was to to be around. Yeah, be I'd have Black been happy with a, with a, with staying there. I truly you at the are, time. You um, are playing him in so it's all been a bonus. How many people have there? I don't want to sound exactly, but I don't think there's a few shy of twenty thousand. Twenty thousand people. Uh, and and then this week it's been like that. Every, you know, I mean, last night we yeah. we do some big. This has been a big tour. Yeah. And tomorrow night you're in the ring. Tomorrow night I'm in the so ring. Yeah, making a, I'm this this home, tour I've been wrestling. Country boy, they're gonna go nuts, aren't uh, Well, you never know. You never know, but I, yeah, I would you, like you to can think be fairly so. Fairly confident. Yeah, I mean Manchester the other night was a, a big night for yeah. me. And I, it's actually one of the few. I, I, I'm saying all this now, and yet anybody who's ever seen me in England, to I get. I suppose it's it's. I don't know. You don't actually see the best of of of, of the character of William Regal. I'm always so humbled by the fact that people <laughs> cheer for me because I've spent yeah. 19 years making people hate me and they just they won't hear. Yeah. But it's not my it's not natural for me to try and be, <laughs> to do anything. You know what I mean? That's yeah. that's the way I do things is to make. So now I'm sort of bringing that and putting a comedy spin on it and doing like a lot of cheating things that like the people are laughing. I'm I'm pulling bad guy tricks on bad guys and, and sort of bringing the fans in as part of that act as well like it's Eddie did a wonderful job of that and so I'm, I'm just sort of getting but I always like and I, especially when I had, I had my family and, and, and one of my best friends there the other night and I'm sort of getting my head down a bit you know I'm a bit not, I don't like going 100% all out as far as the the showbiz stuff, but you'll probably see a bit more of that tomorrow night here because I don't know anybody here. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think I think we'll wrap it up. Well, thank you very much. It's been, been an absolute ab pleasure. No, thank you my, so much, my, All pleasures, all mine. Thank you. In our final segment this month, you're going to get a taste of the London Varieties live show. At the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, we were joined by the legendary Lenny Bage, who shows us why he's still the king of light entertainment. Beautiful to be here. Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. The smell of the working man hanging heavy in the air. <laughs> or in today's political climate, the Bethnal Green Rarely Working Men's Club. Uh, my name is Lenny Beige. Of course it is, you know that. You probably don't, because you're a small young boy. Um, hands up, a show of hands if you've seen Lenny Beige before. Quick show of hands. 
few of you, unbelievable. It's incredible that you haven't seen me. I, I, I don't mean that as an insult, but I was on Celebrity Squares 16 times. Eight times in the middle square, under Supalad, which is frankly in no position for any man to be in. Um, I love to come back here um, to East London because this is where I was born. I was born, I was conceived on the cobbles of the Brick Lane Market. You laugh, it's true. My father, Jaime Bejewitz, was the gusset king of both. And he used to have a pants for a penny stall on the Brick Lane Market. Pet, 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 pets! So what he, <laughs> this is what he used to shout at the passers-by. And, and, and he died uh, when I was quite young. Uh, thanks for giggling. Uh, yeah, your dad's dead. <laughs> um, he, he died face down in a sun-blessed tray of crotchless camisole knickers. He was knickered out by the end of his life. He, uh, he was a very dull man, though. He, he couldn't even entertain a doubt. He was that dull. Um, when my father had a car accident, a near-fatal car accident, the whole of his life flashed before his eyes. He wasn't even in it. He was that dull. Um, and so I was quite unwanted. It's unbelievable when you see this fine figure of a man, yeah, that I was so unwanted. But my earliest memory of my father was him throwing me in the air and, and walking away. Um, they used to get another child to play me in home movies. I was that unwanted. My bath time toys were a toaster and a hairdryer. Um, okay, so you've, you've talked about your childhood. I have. Your, your career, so you made it into the West End. I did, yes. Um, at that point, who were your peers? Um, well, I've always said that I am quite literally peerless. And I was always uh, very fortunate because I inherited a huge amount of money. And so I had the Green Park Penthouse apartment. Um, I had all the accoutrements, the uh, rotating podium-mounted piano-shaped waterbed. Uh, I had a huge collection of gilt-framed originals by Tony Hart. That, <laughs> My favorite being uh, a giant fluorescent orange mural um, of great Jews in history, which started with Moses and ended with me. Um, and so I started, um, you know, I, I, obviously I, Sammy Davis, and Newley is my greatest, my greatest hero, Anthony Newley. He's, he's uh, my, a father figure in my life. And he was born probably around the corner from here, in fact, around the corner. So those for me were the greats. You know, but in London, when I started in the mid-90s, there was ourselves in Club Indigo and Club Montepulciano, and that was it, you know? <laughs> it's true. And, and your, your opinion, facts on, on the current entertainment climate in the West End? Um, the problem is, the problem is, it's very expensive putting on these kind of shows, as you know, and you ain't gonna be a millionaire from doing so. Let me break that news to you. Um, <laughs> I used to go and dine at Langan's, and Matt told me his excitement, and the reason he does the shows here is because of the Brick Lane Bagel Bakery. Um, <laughs> yeah, food for under a pound. Um, <laughs> and the sad thing is, it is an expensive thing to do, and, and it's an expensive thing to ask people to come out uh, every week and, and do that. And obviously it's slightly cheaper here, but in the West End, in the parking and everything else, it, it became prohibitively expensive. And I think that's, that was, that, it's not that there isn't a, a will for people to go out. It's just become a very harsh climate to do so. And venues want more money because they, you know, the, gone are the days of being able to employ a, a house band and, and uh, a, you know, a legion of acts. And that's, that's a real shame. Um, so that's why these, Kind of grassrootsy places are much more important now. Um, I, I, I don't want to open wounds, 
Yeah. Damn, damn right it was. Yeah, I haven't been on television for 12 years. Well, Bitches. <laughs> this is what I was going to maybe bring up, is that many, <laughs> many of people with, with similarly sort of legendary status as yourself have yeah. turned up on TV talent shows. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. No, not no. Well, no, I think it's, it's, it's cheap entertainment for the masses. And there have always been talent shows. The problem is when they kind of permeate it into, into newspapers as well. And, and, and it is free entertainment and it is exploitative. Uh, the great acts that we all know and love, most of them wouldn't go on talent shows because they don't need to go on talent shows. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I, uh, I think they have their place, but I don't think their place is as big as uh, they've become. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I noticed having yeah, been familiar as I am with your work, mm -hmm. um, you don't uh, you don't just uh, uh, interpret um, classic standards. No. You embrace modern. modern I do uh, for me because I have a son Nathan um, who is a loathsome piece of film. Um, <laughs> he's, no. He's a, he's a DJ, um, and I've listened to his radio show, and there is no weather or no news. Um, it's, 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 and it comes from a windowless basement in Dalston, and it's, that's, that's not what the kid Jetson had in mind when he, when he became a DJ. Um, however, through him, I have been uh, introduced to a variety of acts, and I, have, I see showbiz and I see talent, um, and I've worked with some incredible... Um, young artists that have gone on to be worldwide superstars. And the reason for that is they drink from the font of beige. It gives them the elixir of life and vitality. And that is why they keep coming back to my shows. This is why I, I, I brought you here. Thank you very much. It, yeah, it will. Not in a sexy way, but it will. Um, so, I mean, again, I, I don't want to offend. Mm -hmm. um, Who's the next generation of, of, of Lenny Blake? Is there anyone who can take your mantle? No, there's very little space on the light entertainment step ladder. Um, and, but there is space. And for me, it is just about talent and about passion. And, you know, you've seen some incredible acts already uh, on this show so far thus far. I mean, I think the boy with tape on his face is one of the finest acts I've ever seen. And so there will always be great acts like that, but then, uh, you know, what I do is I'm also a producer, I'm an impresario, so I'm slightly different. Uh, I stand on the fringes and in the wings as well as on the stage. And, and I like that kind of, you know, the, the, like I said, I have many, many feathers in my cap, and I, I, I need to have that, I thrive on that, I thrive on show business. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, possibly, would you like to hear another song from Okay, now I, I will do one, and it's this is I haven't done for many, many years, and I, I, I'm not going to say for, for good reason. But I, uh, when I when I did this, this was a very, very big song uh, in the hit parade, and I rewrote the lyrics, and I opened my 1999 Edinburgh show with this. But now you know a little bit about me. Uh, it seems only right that that I I do it. Forgive me if if I don't remember all the words, but I'm pretty damn sure I will. Um, You'll certainly know the tune. My name is, my name is, my name is. Hello. Hello. My name is Beige Lenny. Hello. My name is, you're never gonna forget this by the way. My name is Beige Lenny. Ah, hello. 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 It's Beige Lenny. Hello. Hello. You know, all of my 
my life, I wanted to be top of my profession. I made my debut age with a little sequin vest on. I needed to free myself of my East End ghetto roots. Was born with no shoes on. Look at my Gucci boots. One of mine said, give up Lenny, you ain't got a hope in hell. Now he's got syphilis and he works a fairground carousel. I went in alone, I hitched a white at Ipswich. Then I met my first wife, I've since divorced that bitch. Every night after my shows, there's a screaming gaggle of fans. Trying to pull up my slacks like a crazy John Inman. Frolicking around me like, like babies on ecstasy. Can't wait to sit next to me, but who the juice? That's what vexes me. I live a life of champagne, cigars and caviar. Driving around the Riviera in my open top car. With the eight track blazing, Sammy Davis sings a song. I won't play any techno coffee. Be doing with pizza. Hello, my name is. Uh, my name is. Base Lenny. Hello, my name is. Uh, my name is. Base Lenny. Hello, my name is. My name is. My name is Base. Does this go anywhere behind here or is it just a wall? Is it just a wall? Beautiful. About my family in the middle of this rap. My, my professional life is marvelous, my home life is crap. Give me bagels, canishas, any Jewish food on niblets. My mother made her millions from kosher chicken giblets. She became so insane, she's eating dog biscuits. I'd like to feed her pedigree chum, but I just won't risk it. And now she's got Alzheimer's, thinks her grandson's John Hurt. He's not, he's Nathan, a loathsome piece of dirt. That little boy's nothing like his father named Lenny. The little freak swallowed one XTC tapio too many. So I formed out cash for his rehabilitation. And the next thing I hear, he's been cracking King's Cross Station. I wonder why my daughter can't find the right guy. She really is very beautiful, despite her lazy eyes. But she could have eyes like Marty Feldman, and I'd still love her. She didn't get a look from me, they came from her mother. Oh. Oh. Do you like the ring? Lenny, beige, yeah. <laughs> My tailor, his clothes are made to measure. My favorite of my chinchilla briefs, they're underpants to treasure. I've been around since the hippies wore flowers. Who the hell is this pretender that they're called Austin Powers? I come from a tribe, they call it the Chosen Few. Marvel Comics did a strip, they called it Lenny Super Jew. There was no entertainer that contended to be bigger. Go walk into Hadley's and buy my action figure. Harley floated like a butterfly, he stung like a bee. But I've got the tackle of an Arabian GG. I'm not so much round as positively spherical. That's me and a rat, I love you more than proof of the miracle. That's me and a rat, sit back and watch the show. That took about three minutes, there's about half an hour left to go. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And that's it for this month. It was a bit of an eclectic show, but I hope you liked it. That's kind of the point of the show. It is, after all, variety. Please do tweet me your thoughts and ideas for future guests. On Twitter, I'm at Matt Ricardo. I'd like to thank the Tomax Talks. You can find them at tomaxtalks.com. Also, big thanks to William Regal and all at World Wrestling Entertainment for helping make that interview happen. If you want to find out more about William Regal, I heartily recommend reading his autobiography, Walking a Golden Mile, which is available from Amazon. This podcast is produced by Kirsty at Sounds Wild and hosted by the British Comedy Guide. As always, thanks to them. 
Next month's show is another cracker. Live at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, we have the sold out smash hits of last year's Edinburgh Festival East End Cabaret, the amazing Up and Over It, our new corporate sponsors Circularity Thinking, and in performance and in conversation, Jenny Eclair. Plus, all the usual surprises, special guests, and craziness. Listening, that was your London Varieties. Mad Fricados, London Varieties. Yeah.